I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Something I've been, uh, been rattling around in my mind really for a few weeks, uh, maybe even a few months. And um, among all the things that I have thought about uh, preaching on, this is the one that just uh, really would not go away. It kept burning into my mind and heart. It's such a monumental passage for, uh, for Christianity and for us as a church. And it, of course, involves Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his, we might say, his seminal teaching on so much, on, on the Christian faith, on the gospel, on spirituality in general. This is sort of solidified, I think, for me in our recent trip to Israel when we had a chance to go to what scholars believe is the spot of his teaching and just to be able to be in that environment and think about all the people that gathered around him, all the things that must have been going on in the dynamics of that setting, all of the hustle and bustle and the, even the excitement of what was going on among the people and his disciples. Just reflecting on how, how poignant and how pointed these words must have been coming to that crowd on that day in that season of life. Jesus gives for us in the Sermon on the Mount, on, uh, Sermon on the Mount in many ways, His definition of what it is to believe, His definition of what it is to be blessed, His definition of what a spiritual person is. And I think that's so, such a, an ongoing challenge for us. Those of us who are involved with church and have been involved with church maybe for some extensive period of time, you might say in a more broad sense, those of us who are just involved with religion, those of us who are around religious environments and religious people in the midst of all that we do in all of our activities, all of our acts of service and worship and all those other things, to be called back and be reminded what is a spiritual person? What is this gospel really all about? And Jesus lays it out in the clearest terms in what we commonly call the Beatitudes. They're given, of course, in Matthew's gospel, given here in Luke's gospel. Luke gives us the briefer version of it, we might say. But all of this really pointing at the same basic truth, the, the, the unique marks of a Christian, the unique marks of a genuine believer. They're, uh, we might say, kind of like the fingerprints of our faith, those things which identify us whenever uh, they do forensics tests or law enforcement agencies are, are searching to identify someone, they look for the tried and true uh, uh, impression of your fingerprints because those are the ones which are most difficult to mask, most difficult to hide. They're the ones that are sometimes the truest indicators of who you are. Well, these uh, Jesus gives us in the, the Beatitudes, these marks, these characteristics of a spiritual person. After all the noise and all the activity and everything else that goes on, after all of our, our teaching and singing and evangelizing, after all of our mission trips, after everything else, after all is said and done, these come and ring true for what is genuinely a follower of Christ. These are the unmistakable identifiers of a genuine born-again Christian. Now, it comes to us in, as I said, Jesus' most famous sermon in a setting where he was inundated by crowds, maybe the, the height of his popularity, enormous amounts of people spread across a slope there on the Sea of Galilee who were gathered around to listen to him. And Matthew tells us, that he lifted up his eyes and looked at his disciples and said to them. In other words, these were words that weren't even so much directed at the crowd as much as they were at the disciples. Almost as if 
in contrast to everything that might have been assumed in their mind for why all of these people were gathering around Jesus. They might have assumed that these people were all genuinely followers. They might have assumed that all these people were gathering for the right reasons. They might have assumed a lot of things, but Jesus wants to direct their attention to what is genuinely true, or what is true, I should say, of a genuine follower of Christ. And it comes in particular contrast in Luke's gospel to a couple of controversies that had taken place at the beginning of Luke 6. One of them, in the verse, first five verses, have to, have to do with a, a Sabbath controversy where Jesus' disciples were plucking heads of grain in the midst of the grain fields, and the Pharisees said to him in verse 2, Why do you do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful but the priest, uh, for any but the priest to eat, and he gave it to those with him. Jesus was in the midst of a controversy of these Pharisees who wanted to who wanted to strain out, as he says in one place, every gnat of the law. He, they wanted to define down everything to uh, this level of, um, of condemnation and judgmentalism. And they come into conflict with Jesus, trying to, trying to pull out some finer point of the law, and Jesus points to them, appoints them to, how the law was, you might even say, applied, or some people would say misapplied in the case of one of their heroes, David. Obviously highlighting, as he says to them in verse 5, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Obviously highlighting that whatever their granular view of the Sabbath was, it didn't take into account the greater reality of Jesus Jesus and his own life and teaching, much less the entire context of the Old Testament law. We're told in verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come, And stand here, and he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here Jesus is just exposing the hearts of these men who were so-called scribes, so-called experts in the law. They had figured out all of the violations. They were prepared, Jesus, I mean, uh, Luke tells us, they were prepared to find any way they could to accuse Christ. They had their arguments, they had their verses, they had their uh, citations ready until Jesus pulls back And ask them the bigger question. Is it lawful to do good or not on the Sabbath? These were the the spiritual leaders of Israel. These are the one that everyone followed. These are the one that everyone esteemed. These are the ones that everyone admired in their ranks and in their cities and in their context. And so Jesus knows as this crowd is gathering around him there on the, the hills of Galilee, he knows as he's getting ready to teach his teaching, he knows what the presuppositions are amongst all the people. He knows the way that they evaluate spirituality and the way that they evaluate faith. He understands all of that. And he doesn't do anything to accommodate it. What he does is he goes right after their misperceptions, he goes right after their, their uh, wrong ideas on spirituality, on what a spiritual person really is. And he gives them his great teaching 
on what we call the Beatitudes. He says in verse 20, as he's gathered his disciples around himself, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers, or for so their fathers, did to the prophets. This is Jesus' declaration on true spirituality, true faith. Or as he says it here, true happiness, the word makarios, blessed, could be translated happy. These are declarations, these are pronouncements of, of what a happy soul really is. And they all, of course, stand in contrast to everything the world would think of as happy. They all stand in contrast to everything the world pursues for happiness. They stand in contrast to all of the greed, all of the pride, all the presumption. They stand in contrast to all the desire for peace. They stand in contrast to all of those things. And yet, in a profound way, give us this insight into a spiritual person. The real marks of a spiritual person, the real fingerprints of faith, the real indicators of a kingdom citizen, we might say. And and just to review these briefly this morning, we can go through the these four, these four marks or four indicators or four fingerprints of genuine faith. We can take note, first of all, what Jesus tells us in verse 20, that a, a kingdom citizen, a truly blessed person in the Lord, a genuine follower of God and of Christ is going to be marked, first of all, by a sense of inadequacy. A sense of inadequacy. That's what he means when he says, blessed are the poor. He's talking about those who are spiritually impoverished. He's saying these are the kinds of people who can approach God. These are the kinds of people that God wants to approach Him. He wants people who are going to come to Him absolutely empty-handed. As the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This is, this is the essence. This is at the pinnacle. This is the first indicator, the first line of the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached. And this is the way he defines spirituality. It is those who are poor. And you should know in, in the Greek language there were two words for poor. Pentecost, which is the common word for poor. It was those who were poor and therefore forced to work all the time for their living. They were in contrast to the luxurious rich who didn't need to work on a daily basis. The poor were sort of the, 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 the uh, what do they call it, the hoi lapoi, the rest of us, the, the, the regular crowd of people who were forced to get up each day and labor and toil and sweat because they didn't have uh, sort of independent wealth and resources to fall back on. And then there was another word, tokos, which literally meant destitute. This was the person who not only had no uh, savings and no uh, wealth to fall back on, this was the person who actually had no means of self-support. They were unable to work. They were unable to help themselves. They were completely dependent on other people for whatever reason. They were the destitute. And this is the word that Jesus uses here. These are the ones who come to Christ. These are the ones who are recognized by Him. This is the way you have to come. You can't come with uh, some offer of contribution. God, if you will help me a little bit, I'll, I'll, I'll pay my part. 
You can't come with this idea that you're going to offer to God something that is so valuable and precious to Him that He couldn't turn the offer down. You can't come with this idea that you have half emptied your account or that you are down to your final dollars and you are coming to God looking for Him to give you some sort of deposit. You come to Him when you're absolutely bankrupt. Bankrupt in the worst possible way. Destitute. You're poor in that sense. This is a, this is a theological term. He's using this phrase not in an economic terms. He's not saying that rich people can't ever enter the kingdom of heaven. He's certainly not suggesting that if you have money, there's something evil or wrong with that. Jesus himself welcomed wealthy people into his following and the the scriptures are full of examples of people who have some wealth and are followers of Christ. He's not saying that you have to be economically poor. He's talking about spiritual terms. And this is the truth that you find all over scripture. This is the recurring theme. In fact, I was thinking about this this week and reading through some things this week and just reminded how pervasive this idea is. This, this is not something Jesus dreamt up. He is simply teaching what the scripture always teaches that it is those who are spiritually destitute who are the ones who can approach God. Psalm 40, since I am afflicted and needy, the word is ebion, it's the same meaning there in the Old Testament, since I'm afflicted and needy, Lord, be mindful for me. You're my helper and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He's saying, look, God, I'm coming to you in the right frame of mind. I'm coming to you with this kind of spiritual sense of poverty. Or Psalm 86, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Same word there. Psalm 109, I am afflicted and needy or afflicted and poor. My heart is wounded within me. Now, what's interesting about all those psalms is that they're all psalms of David, who, of course, was not impoverished. He was who? He was the king. So when he says, look, I am coming to you and I'm needy and I'm poor, he's not talking about himself in economic terms. He's talking about himself in spiritual terms. Confessing to God his afflicted state. Or... Proverbs 3.34, though he scoffs at the scoffers, God gives grace to the poor. Psalm 16, it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly, that is with the poor, rather than divide the spoil with the proud. All again and again and again, you see this celebrated, exalted and highlighted in the Scripture. Not just as the initial way that you come to God. Not just as your initial approach. Not just as a a one-time confession that you make. But this is the way you follow God. This is the way you approach Him every day. This is what takes up your prayers. This is what invigorates your prayers. This is what uh, gives you this, this sense of approach to God. It only makes sense because if you are approaching him as someone who is not as needy as you really are, the reality is you're going to approach him less and less. In other words, a sense of self-sufficiency is going to be the very thing that's going to dampen your prayer life and dampen your devotional life. Jesus is defining for us what a spiritual person looks like. This is the way they enter the kingdom. This is the way they follow God. This is what they continue to pursue all throughout their life. This is what they confess with their lips. This is the way their, their, their language is characterized. Their conversation is characterized. This is the way their theology is grounded. It's all grounded in this idea of spiritual poverty. That's why the Apostle Paul, at the very end of his life, in his very final letter, after he's done everything he's done, after he's planted all the churches he's planted, 
He can say this is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. This is why Jesus could present to us a parable of a, a Pharisee who was in, a, in the synagogue up in the front thanking God that he's not as bad as everybody else, thanking God that he's not the, uh, ex, you know, he's not the, 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 the liar or the cheat or the whatever, he, thanking God that he's not the adulterer, thanking God that he's not as bad as everybody else. And then Jesus says at the very back was a tax collector beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the man who went home justified. This is the big picture. This is what Jesus wants us to grasp, to understand, to continue to cling to, to follow all the days of our life. That those who approach God, those who follow God, those who are near to God are those who have this ongoing sense of spiritual poverty. Not those who have little to offer to God, but those who have nothing, nothing to offer to God. These are the ones who have ceased measuring themselves by other men because they come face to face with God. And they realize the deficiencies that they have even if they measure well with others, will never measure up to God. And so they come to Him with this spiritual sense of poverty, absolutely destitute. Jesus says, when you come that way, yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. You who don't have anything, you who are completely destitute. You who have not only no possessions or, or uh, not only no claim to, to wealth in this world, you who have no claim to position or recognition, you're not the Pharisees, you're not the scribes, you're not the ones that everyone's going to follow, you're not the ones that necessarily everyone's going to esteem. You are none other than an inheritor of God's kingdom. Yours is the kingdom of God. Profound, profound thought that in giving up your own claim to kingdom worthiness, you inherit God's kingdom. Well, there's another spiritual attitude that Jesus talks about here. Not only... Does he talk about this spiritual poverty? But he also talks about a spiritual aspiration. Uh, That's another fingerprint, another marker here of spiritual life. Is once you've realized your inadequacy, once you have emptied yourself of yourself, no longer full of yourself in that sense, once you have completely realized your destitute nature, then you are ready to be filled and you begin to hunger and thirst. As Matthew says, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger now, Luke says, for they shall be satisfied. This is just, this is just a realization of what that stirring and that yearning in your heart really is all about. It's there and people try to fill it with all kinds of things. They try to fill it with their booze or their uh, relationships or their wealth or their pride or whatever it is. It's stirring and people are always trying to fill it. It's the person who realizes the absolute destitute nature of themselves and of this world who come and they are hungering now for that which does satisfy. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Apart from God, men never realize this. They never know what satisfies. They continue to pursue the mirages of the world, the lies of Satan. They spend their life, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, pursuing vain things, things which will not satisfy. Never realizing that God has created you with 
a yearning need in your heart for himself. You try to fill it with everything else. You try to, uh, to go after the glory and the power and the possessions that society tells you you must have. You go from one thing after the next and it never really settles your heart. All the while, this yearning, this hunger can never really be rightly placed as long as you are filled with your own pride, filled with this idea of your own sufficiency before God. It's only as you empty yourself that you begin to hunger and thirst for the right things. Jesus is not, by the way, saying that you're happy just in hungering and thirsting for happiness. He's not saying you're happy simply whenever you realize that you're sad. He's saying that you are happy whenever you realize your poverty and begin to hunger and thirst for the right things. That's the clarity that comes out of Matthew's parallel. It isn't just hungering. It isn't just yearning. It is hungering and thirsting for what truly satisfies. Again, you know, you have this message all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Calling out to the people of Israel who were doing the same thing. Or Jeremiah chapter 2, calling out the, the, the people of Israel again there because they had hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Rather than coming, as Jeremiah says, to God who is the fountain of living waters. Isaiah 55 says, Everyone who thirsts, let him come. And lo, everyone who has no money, let him come and buy and eat. God's always offered himself as the only satisfaction for this yearning that's in our hearts. And yet you think your appetite is for whatever idol you have made in your heart. You think that your appetite is for that thing or that person or that position. And you have allowed it to take its place in the center of your heart. And you have ceased hungering and thirsting for that which truly satisfies Well, Jesus is promising us when you have your heart directed in the right pathway, when you have set your eyes on the right prize, when you have framed it up with what is true and not what is false, when you have a hunger now for the right things, He's promising there will come satisfaction. It's going to come because you're going to pursue the Lord You're going to hunger and thirst for Him. You're going to go after Him. And He's going to begin to work in your heart and life in ways that satisfy you, not only with Himself, but with sanctification, with righteousness, with a kind of usefulness in His hands that satisfies. You're going to begin to to experience for Him the kind of the kind of qualities that you might say are representative in true hunger. Jesus, you remember, famously said that my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Or as He said, out in the desert when Satan tempted Him to turn stones into bread, He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This was a, a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God had taken Israel out into the wilderness and they were out there wandering around grumbling and complaining because they had nothing but manna to eat. And God told them, I have taken you out there to test you to find out whether or not you really want to obey my commandments. And then he says to them, because you don't live by bread alone but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes that because he understood 
after his own season of testing. He understood the temptation that Satan was putting in front of him. To begin to put any material thing, any appetite, any desire in front of obedience to the will of the Lord. See, hunger is a a striking picture. It kind of paints this idea of something that is uh, uh, necessary. I mean, as you you get hungry over time, this uh, this is the thing that begins to consume your mind and your heart. It becomes a, the one thing that you think about as necessary in all of life. And so there's, this kind, of a, there's kind of a sense of necessity that is associated with hunger as well as a sense of intensity. I mean, hunger intensifies as you go. A starved person has a single all-consuming passion and direction and craving. Nothing else Appeals. Everything else loses its attraction. You might even say a kind of a, an association with totality. There's, a, there's an all-consuming nature to it. In fact, the Greek verbs that are used even here, hunger, uh, hunger that Jesus is mentioning here, normally they are Constructed with what we call a partitive genitive. Uh, and so you would say something like, I hunger for, you might if you translate this, of food, or I hunger for of water. But Jesus doesn't even use the partitive genitive here, but the accusative. You're hungering and thirsting, or I should say in Matthew he uses the accusative, hungering and thirsting for not some righteousness, but for You could translate it all righteousness, all consuming desire. This is what happens when you come to Christ with the right kind of attitude, the right kind of understanding of your own spiritual poverty. Once you've emptied yourself of all of that idea of self-worth, all that idea that, that something is owed to you, all that idea that somehow you ought to be treated in a certain way because you're deserving of some better treatment. Once you have emptied yourself of all that expectation and you come to Him with the right kind of spiritual poverty, you've emptied yourself in that way, then you begin to hunger and thirst for what is that which truly satisfies. That's why you're blessed. You're blessed because you're the one or you're one of the ones who has truly found the pathway of satisfaction. Jesus adds a third fingerprint, a third characteristic of the kingdom citizen, third fingerprint of faith, we would say, and that is, in verse 21, a sorrow for sin. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The term weep here is, uh, describes a remorse, a deep, deep remorse, a helplessness almost. It's not necessarily tears of pain, but tears of abject helplessness. A deep sense of mournfulness. And really nothing could be more illogical than what Jesus is saying here, that, that this is the way to happiness that this kind of sadness is the way to happiness. This is a sadness, however, that is oriented around sin. And a, a mourning, a grieving over sin. And it strikes really in contrast not only to Jesus' own day, but to, our, to ourselves as well. Because our whole society is is uh, situated around and bent towards commercialism or, or we might say inducing you to some allurement to happiness. I mean, it, it tries. The world shuns the whole idea of mourning as if it is, it is uh, almost, we might say, evil. It's evil to mourn and to be sad. It's at least uh, distorted It might even be some sort of illness to be treated. 
And if you could summarize our entire economy in terms of money, it is, it is money spent to avoid mourning. Ranging in billions of dollars that people spend every year to simply eradicate these feelings of sorrow. Massive amounts of energy and time and interest expended to entertain ourselves, to drown our sorrows, to pursue the next thrill, the next adrenaline rush. All of these things designed to get people to forget about any idea or to get over any kind of idea of weeping and mourning. Sadly, the church has even bought into this. Where the idea of mourning within Christian circles, the idea of mourning as a part of a community activity, the idea of mourning in your Christian life is shunned. The assumed reality today is that we as Christians... If we're ever to attract those who are non-Christians, the only way we are to ever do it is if we would deliberately present this bright and jovial appearance. And so everything is about becoming giddy. The last thing you want to do is appear dour and sad and gloomy and mourning. And yet Jesus says this is the ones who are blessed. These are the ones who are blessed. They will laugh. It's interesting. That's not a common word if you think about it in the New Testament. There's no record of Jesus ever laughing. We have records of His tears. We have records of His hunger. We have records of His fatigue. We have records of all kinds of of those kinds of emotions, but we never have any record of Him laughing. If anything, we're told... In Isaiah 53, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet Jesus says that when we come to him, we come with a kind of mourning over our sin that leads to a joy, a laughter, if not externally, internally. We come with the idea of our spiritual bankruptcy. We leave with a treasured chest in our hearts of joy. This is what uh, 2 Corinthians sometimes, or what 2 Corinthians uh, calls godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. In contrast to worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow, it says, only produces more death, more despair. There's a kind of sorrow in your life. There's a kind of mourning in your life. There's a kind of grief and sadness in your life that just compounds the sadness. It just compounds the grief and the pain of your heart. But there's a godly sorrow the Scripture teaches that leads, as Jesus says here, to laughter. As Paul says, it leads to vindication. It leads to satisfaction. A mourning that leads to a genuine, heartfelt happiness. This is what marks a kingdom citizen. This is what marks someone who has a proper view of life, of themselves, of sin, and of God. And it leads to, I guess you wouldn't say, an authentic testimony. It's interesting, and you know, this is the 500th year of the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I've been reading some articles on that in the last couple months, and um, I sometimes have to be reminded of this. Uh, but Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed on the door of Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517, the very first theses says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. Luther understood something that Jesus was teaching, is that whenever we come and whenever we begin to follow God, there is, there is, a, there, there is certainly a repentance that marks the initial uh, reaction to Christ, but there's an ongoing grief over sin. There's an ongoing mourning over sin. There's an ongoing repentant attitude in our hearts. 
that characterizes all of our life. Why is that? Because the more you grow in Christ, the deeper your sense of sin is. You begin to see things that you didn't see before. You might actually be sinning less than you ever have in the past, but the sins that you do see in your life cause you more and more grief, more and more sorrow, more and more pain. And so, this mourning that Jesus talks about here, it characterizes not only our initial approach to God, it it characterizes our entire life. A spiritual poverty, a spiritual aspiration, a sorrow for sin, and then we could add, fourthly, a separation from the world. A separation from the world. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that a part of this following of Him is going to involve rejection. This is the pathway to happiness. This is what a blessed life looks like. This is what a joyful life looks like. It's someone who is, in the course of their following of Him, willing to be hated, willing to be excluded, willing to be reviled for the sake of His gospel. He spoke of this often in his ministry, continued to warn his disciples that if their faith was true and if their discipleship was going to be genuine, they could expect rejection. John 15, I I referenced earlier this morning, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of this world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It reminds them, That during those days, when the world hates them, be reminded that they also hated Christ first. They also hated Christ first. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings on behalf of you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. What he's saying there is, look, I'm going I'm to serve the church. I'm going to serve the people of God. And when I'm doing that, I realize that there's going to be a continued assault against Christ, a continued assault on the body of Christ. And I rejoice. I'm willing to bear up under that kind of rejection for the sake of my Savior. There are a lot of people who can't do that. They can't walk down a pathway unless it is filled with praise, unless it's filled with accolades, unless it's filled with pats on the back. But genuine spiritual faith, those who are marked as genuine citizens of the kingdom, they're willing for the sake of their Savior to experience whatever ridicule may come. To stand true to his name, his gospel. It's because sometimes our faith is confrontational. In fact, it has to be in this kind of a world. Even when it's preached without any words, your life will be an affront to those around you. Abel, as far as we know, never said a word to Cain, and yet his righteous worship of God pricked Cain's soul, and Cain retaliated because his conscience was pricked. 2 Timothy 3.12, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The hatred of the world is not done against its, its um, uh, or I should say against Christ, against our Savior, against His gospel. They will come. And instead of being feared, Jesus tells us we need to welcome them. We need to welcome them. Peter, over in 1 Peter chapter 3, challenges us in similar fashion, maybe even recalling the words of Christ right here when he writes these words. 1 Peter 3, verse um, 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear. 
nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for what's doing good if it should be God's will than for doing what is evil. So this is our this is our pathway. We are to, Jesus says, recognize it's a blessed pathway. Peter says we are to embrace it with not only respect and gentleness, but with intelligence and with purity. Because when we do this, we bring glory to God. That's what Jesus is telling us here. When they, when they come against you, they hate and ostracize you. They insist, in other words, on misrepresenting your life they 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 harass you they abuse you they cast insults at you they accuse you of being naive at best intolerant at worst they spurn your name as evil he says in verse 22 they try to discredit you they overemphasize your faults or falsely accuse you because they simply can't believe that anyone would live to that standard and their own conscience is pricked. Jesus says you're blessed. Rejoice, he says in verse 23. Leap for joy. Why is that? Well, basically, for two reasons. First of all, because your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our light affliction, which is just for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we rejoice, first of all, because whatever we're looking at, whatever is before our eyes, whatever kind of hatred and and spurning of our our name or whatever it might be whatever is going on in front of us it's just temporary and it's working for us in a far more eternal and weighty glory paul says so jesus says Re- rejoice because your reward is great in heaven when you're standing and and um, holding to his gospel and his name in the midst of all this and the second reason Because your persecution, we might say, confirms your distinction from the world. Because as Jesus says, they treated, their fathers treated the prophets in the same way. The Jewish people, the fathers of the Pharisees, the scribes, the priesthood, whatever you want to say, they responded to the prophets in the same way. They rejected Jeremiah, they rejected Isaiah, they rejected Malachi. They did all of this. And so you're standing, he says, in good company when this is happening. When they're hurling these insults and they're coming against you in this way. And of course you're standing most blessedly with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Who came to his own and his own did not receive him. Of course the way to avoid all of this is obvious. You can minimize all of the pain that the world would bring your way. You can compromise with their ways. You can overlook their lewdness. You can enjoy their entertainment. You can smile when they mock God. You can put up with their manipulation and you can uh, accommodate yourself to all of their sin. You can be well-liked by many people but as Jesus says down in verse 26 woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did of the false prophets there's a way to make everyone accept you if you're willing to put some distance between yourself and faithfulness to Christ if you're willing to put some distance between yourself and his righteousness But if you want to stand with the great men of faith and the great women of faith, you have to suffer with them. 
No shortcuts, no exceptions. The way the world treated the prophets becomes the standard measure of your life. And Hebrews 11 says, Of them the world is not worthy. So it's good to get a reminder of these things and all the busyness of ministry and all the things that are going on for us in our Bible studies and our servant uh, service and all the activities going on. It's good to be reminded in a big picture way at this very outset of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry of what he considered to be a genuine follower of himself. Someone who walks with a sense of spiritual inadequacy. Someone who has a yearning and a longing and aspiring after righteousness. Someone who is continually mourning over remaining sin in their life. And someone who's willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness, the sake of Christ. These, he says, are blessed. And theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and uh, you've never heard this before, you've only heard some speak uh, speeches about religion and Christianity being a bunch of things you have to do, you never understood that Jesus is calling people who are spiritually impoverished. Our challenge to you this morning is this. If you are that person, if you have recognized the complete bankruptcy of your efforts, the spiritual inadequacy of your life, if you're ready to make that confession of your sin, the Scripture promises that Christ will meet you with forgiveness. He will meet you with a promise and a hope of eternal life in Him. When we pray here in a moment... If you'd like to respond to the gospel, I encourage you to find me, seek me out, or one of our elders, any of our teachers, and give us an opportunity to share with you the glories of Christ's gospel, where He has accomplished everything on your behalf. Father, we're grateful for these reminders. They are the things that need to be at the forefront of our minds. They are the ways that we need to continue to measure our own life. They're the things that we need to pursue They're the things that we need to esteem. I pray, Father, that you make us these kinds of people in this kind of a church. Those that readily confess our inadequacies, who understand uh, what it is that truly satisfy. We pray, Father, that you give us that kind of hunger and thirsting, while at the same time the kind of mourning and weeping over remaining sin that's there. Give us all those things and a willingness to suffer for you so that we can be blessed. So that we can tell of your greatness because we taste it every day. We see it with pure eyes and open hearts to our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.